Today on the Janice Adams Show, on this Martin Luther King birthday weekend, we pay tribute to Dr. King's vision, courage, gift of hope, and leadership through the struggle with this performance of The Dream by composer and drummer Max Roach. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its dream. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Today on the Janice Adams Show, on this Martin Luther King birthday weekend, we pay tribute to Dr. King's vision, courage, gift of hope, and leadership through the struggle with this performance of The Dream by composer and drummer Max Roach. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its dream. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. With this faith, we will be able to transform the dangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. said Max Roach, and the drum set is one of the few instruments native to this country. This is a democratic nation, and jazz is a democratic music in which we all express ourselves as individuals and cooperate for the overall good. That's good enough for the bandstand, and it is good good enough for the world. In music, you can make a dream come to life as a reality of design and feeling. Democracy is a dream of being able to do it better someday. I have never stopped dreaming. Max Roach, legendary drummer, composer, pioneer of jazz, MacArthur Genius Award winner, educator. Max was also my husband. On this birthday tribute to the man, his music, and his legacy, we're featuring his masterwork, We Insist, the Freedom Now Suite. Here's the opening track, Drive a Man. Drive a man, he made a life, but the mammy ain't his wife. Chopping cotton, don't be slow. Better finish out your rope. Keep a moving with 
show you how. Get to work and root that stump. Drive a man or make you jump. Better make your hammer ring. Drive a man or start to swing. Ain't but two things on my mind. Drive a man and quit in time. That was Drive a Man from the Freedom Now Suite by Max Roach. In the late 1950s, inspired by the upcoming centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation, Max as composer and his collaborator, Oscar Brown Jr. as lyricist, created what would become the Freedom Now Suite. With us on the show to talk about Max and the Suite, two longtime friends, Brother Ah, Robert Northern, a master French hornist, he first met Max in the 1950s when they both attended conservatory at the Manhattan School of Music. And George Ferentz, venerated stage director known for his work at La Mama and seminal stagings of the plays of Amiri Baraka, Sam Shepard, and others. In 1993, George worked with Max to bring the Freedom Now Suite from the concert hall to the theater stage. Here's George. I was directing a play by Amiri Baraka, and he had a party. And at the party, it was a lot of people. And I sat down, it was one of those where uh, his wife, Amina, this amazing amount of food and everything else, but you had the plate on your lap, okay? Yes. And I was sitting next to this gentleman who was older and very, wore expensive clothes and suits, and oh my goodness, he looked like a politician. And uh, <laughs> but we started talking, and, and uh, we got along in the talking without even knowing each other's names. So at one point, after we had finished eating and we'd reach a point where uh, we could continue the conversation or move on, and I said, well, my name is George Ferentz, and I'm a stage director. And he says, well, I'm Max Roach, and I play drums. And and here I was talking to Max Roach. (laughs) And so, so anyway, Max and I agreed to meet again and work together on a project. And then he disappeared. And then finally, I got word, and I'm not sure how this happened, that I was to meet Max at his agent's office. And so I went up there and uh, met Max, but it seemed like it was a very official type of meeting. And during our conversation at Amiri's, it was just friendly talk. He was talking about Duke Ellington and how theatrical he was and that. But now it was more like, what are you calling about? What are you talking about? So I told him it was three plays by Sam Shepard that we'd call Shepard Sets, and he'd be the musical director, composer, everything. He'd be responsible for working with me in rehearsals, being available for publicity, blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, tell me more about Sam Shepard. And so I said, well, he's the playwright of the moment right now, and uh, he was a drummer. 
and Ellen Stewart at La Mama has a special relationship with him, and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and he used to drum and get himself all sweaty and then write a play. So Matt, this intrigued Max, so he said, I'm interested. And at that time, uh, I was I had come from the Midwest, a very, uh, oh, it was a orthodox kind of theater that was being done. And Max, um, he'd come to rehearsal, and uh, even before we started rehearsals, we were going to be rehearsing three shows at the same time. And uh, the producers had decided they provide Max with the musicians for the rehearsals from 10 to 4 every day. And this was an opportunity I've never had before. But Max would make things improvisational because he believed that was the key to the secret to art. It was based on improvisation. And he encouraged uh, the designers and myself not to pre-plan things, but just to come in with all we had, the research we had done and everything else somewhere in our being and to sit on the table and <laughs> and uh, and see see what, what the impulse of the act treat the actors like musicians well I had never heard anything like this before and we did it and we ran up there and the show ended up doing very well and Max won the Obie Award and then uh, that started a whole relationship here you are talking about your work with Sam Shepard that you then worked with Max on as well, your work with Amiri Baraka, two of the giants of, you know, late 20th century American theater. Um, what made you decide that you would take the shift, even though, yes, you'd worked with Max before, but take the shift to away from the strictly theatrical into taking, working with him on musical experiences that had a theatrical bent but didn't begin with the core of theater. What made you decide you wanted to do that? Sure, I don't know. Um, but uh, the fact that there was a risk involved only made it more attractive. Um, but I didn't see it as that big of a change also. Max somehow wanted to be more theatrical, where the fact that rock and roll groups could invest uh, so so much effort into one of their things that they could fill a stadium. And he wanted, I know when we had a long talk about this in Perugia, what he wanted, though, was with live people, not with all the gimmickry, but with live people. So we had the bassists, we had dancers, we had all these people that Max brought over. And then, like a whole orchestra, and so so he wanted the size of it, the sense and, of spectacle. Uh, yeah, he was very interested in spectacle, and so was I. Interestingly, Max, when he decided he was going to write a memoir, which he never really got to finish, but the first version of it that he was going to write himself, he called "Jazz is a four-letter word." That was the title. And he did not particularly like the word jazz because of the negativity as he'd grown up. He looked at it as music. He looked at it as music from the wealth of the African-American experience or the black experience, as it would have been said at that particular period of time. And there was a lot of talk at that point about this being America's classical music. It's being indigenous, and it's being the real 
the real American music being African-American music and, quote, jazz being America's classical form. And in fact, I remember being with musicians in Europe who echoed that. It was only here that the music wasn't given that level of respect. So when you talk about this kind of staging with the people in formal clothes and the theatricality of it, um, make giving it the gravitas that Max really long saw in his head as to how the music should be, not seen in European terms, but seen in his terms, whatever that was, and that he should have the freedom to make those terms whatever he chose for it to be. So I'm finding that the description that you're giving an interesting manifestation, essentially, of these conversations that we had had. Were there similar conversations about that kind of thing that you had with Max? We worked together on, I'd say, roughly about 16 or 17 shows together, one way or the other. And um, and so a lot of stuff came out, but I can't remember any specific thing. Um, I mean, I could talk about Max all night, but I don't remember anything that wasn't pertaining to the show right at hand. It was very practical about that, and I had to be. Because I didn't know very much about jazz. I still don't know that much, but I learned a lot by the people he introduced me to and the way he worked, and he changed the way I worked. How so? Well, this whole thing of treating actors like musicians and the power of improvisation. Yeah, he was an artist, and he was a real one. And I was very lucky and very fortunate to uh, be in Max, what I call Max World. Freedom Day by Max Roach. On the Janice Adams Show, a birthday tribute to Max and his masterwork, we insist the Freedom Now Suite. More after the break. Can't conceive it, can't believe it, but that's what they say. Slave no longer, slave no longer, this is Freedom Day. Freedom Day, it's Freedom Day.
We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with a birthday tribute to Max Roach, legendary drummer, composer, jazz pioneer, MacArthur Genius Award winner and educator. Max was also my husband. Born in North Carolina in 1924, Max was a son of the great migration of African Americans from the unreconstructed oppression of the Jim Crow South to the hope of a better life in the North. En route, they changed a nation. With their culture, that steady beat of history and heart, they changed the world. It was that steady beat with which Max kept time and faith. As an activist, honored the world over for his human rights stand. In 2014, for what would have been his 90th year, the Library of Congress celebrated its acquisition of his papers for their collection. Here's Max, as guest of the library two decades earlier, telling the story of his earliest days as a musician. I'd met people, I worked with Duke Ellington when I was 17, and from that point on, I was just a lucky so-and-so, so to speak. Because when you're a kid and you work with the mighty, with the mighty ones like Duke and people like that, I had an opportunity. I was, even though I still didn't know what was going on and what I was doing in a way, I must have known something, though. But in any case, uh, after that, I was just a quote a star, a 17-year-old kid working in New York Paramount with great Duke Ellington's band because Sonny Greer had gotten sick and it was during the war and uh, big Sidney Catlett and Kenny Clark and all these folks were in the army, so I had to get because I could read music. And the funny story about that is that uh, when I got called for that, that job, I was working in a place owned by Billy Holiday's brother-in-law, Clark Monroe. She was married to Jimmy Monroe at that time. I didn't know them and then. Then this is all after the fact. Now I'm writing my autobiography. I'm seeing, oh well, yeah, really, that, these are important people. But when I got down to the New York Paramount and looked at that stage, which was down below the audience and it rose up like this when the show started. Uh, and looked around me on it, uh, 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 there was the Johnny Hodges and Ben Webster and all these people, and here's the little boy up there with them. But when Mr. Ellington finally loaded up the bandstand and came on the stage, and the bandstand rose up to the audience, the drummer was at the, the pinnacle. It was the top, you know, Duke had a way of designing even the bandstand. And so, uh, I was a kid, as I said earlier, who had a reputation that could read a show, you know, it was vaudeville in those days. And uh, when I hit the bandstand and looked around at Mr. Greer's drums kit, he had timpani, vibraphones, bells, chimes, and Duke had wrote for everything, but not a sheet of music was in sight. I turned white. So when Mr. Ellington came to the stage, when he finally, after everybody loads up on the stage down here, and he came up and he looked up at this young guy on the stage, he, he, he summed it up just perfectly. He said, keep one eye on me and one eye on the act. He was the greatest conductor I've ever worked under. You know, he, I just made it through that. But then the reputation came out that there was a kid downtown who worked with Mr. Ellington, and from then on, I worked with the Benny Carters, the Coleman Hawkins, the Dizzy Gillespie's, the Charlie Parkers, the Miles Davises, the Roy Eldridge's, the Coleman, just everybody. I've had it made. 
So here I am. A drum solo by Max Roach. Among Max's oldest friends, Brother R. Robert Northern is host of WPFW, Pacifica's long-running jazz show, The Collectors, and a master musician. I met Max Roach as a student. We were both uh, studying at the Manhattan School of Music uh, back in the 50s, and uh, it was a, quite an experience because I was there as a, as a French horn player, and he was there as a drummer, but Back in the 50s, we were not allowed to play jazz at all in the school. And and uh, one day I met Max, and Max was furious. I said, Max, why are you so mad? He said, you know, they just my professor told me that I didn't know how to play the drums. He, I mean, he said, I'm playing every night down with Charlie Parker down at Birdland, and he's saying that I don't know how to hold the sticks. So uh, he was very, very angry at that. I remember that very much so. Max played timpani in the orchestra because, as I said, there was no jazz allowed, and there were great jazz musicians in the schools, Joe Wilder, Donald Byrd, uh, Julius Watkins, John Lewis of the Modern Jazz Quartet, I mean, uh, Eddie Byrd. I mean, there were so many great musicians there, and we're not allowed to play jazz. So we were all studying classical music. And um, Max, Max was, uh, of course, a very good student, and we became friends uh, back in those days, in, in the 50s, at, at the school. That's how I first met him. I transferred to the Vienna Academy of Music, Vienna, Austria, and when I got back in, to America in 1958, uh, it, was very difficult, it was very difficult to find a position. I was blessed in a way, in that uh, my teacher, Gunther Schuller, who taught me at Manhattan Music, was the first hornist at the, at, the, at the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. And through his recommendation, I was able to get into that orchestra on the stage, with stage band, with George Schulte, was the conductor, uh, playing French horn and Wagner Tubin on the stage. When that tenure came to an end, uh, and I tried to find a job, uh, you know, I, it was impossible not only to find a job, to find the auditions. We didn't even know, as black musicians in New York, we didn't even know where the auditions were being held. They were not posted at the union, so we couldn't see. So the Urban League contacted us. We had a meeting with um, several musicians who were able to play jazz and classical music, you know, Harry Smiles, Howell Jones, so with Clark, these are names I don't know whether you know. This is these are names of great musicians back in the day. Kermit Moore, uh, you know, uh, Richard Davis. All of us were in a meeting with the Urban League, and they said, "Listen, you you guys just stay in shape, stay ready, because when we call, we're going to find out where the auditions are going to be held, and you might not have time to do anything but grab your instrument, jump in a cab, and get down there." And that's what happened with me. Uh, Evan Lake, Doug Pugh was his name, gave me a, a, a call and said there are auditions being held at Radio City Music Hall, which I had no idea about the auditions. And he said, get down there as fast as you can. And I grabbed my horn, got in the cab, and got down to the, to the uh, music hall, and there was a line of 
maybe 10 horn plays auditioning. And uh, when I walked in, everybody was amazed and amused. <laughs> Some of the guys were laughing. To hear with this one black musician amongst these about 10 white hornists, I was at the end of the line, and uh, they didn't know that I was coming, of course. I just showed up. So uh, they were auditioning, you know, they were auditioning all the, the young players. And when they finally got to be my turn, and they kept them all, maybe five, ten minutes, uh, I played uh, I played a solo for them, that's part of the Mozart Horn Concerto. And uh, they said, oh, great, now let's, let's see about your sight reading. Little did they know, you know, that I was, uh, I, I had just come back from Vienna. I was studying in Vienna with the, uh, uh, Professor Gottfried von Freiburg, who was a solo hornist with the Vienna Philharmonic. He was also the solo hornist with the uh, Vienna, uh, Vienna Opera State Opera Company. They had no idea that I knew the repertoire, and I had I had spent a few years tenure with the Metropolitan Opera myself. So they were going into their library and pulling on all this difficult music, which I knew. Tulsilens, Tulsenspiegel, you know, uh, I'd held in Laban. There was a Cavalier. They were pulling out all of the difficult horn parts, and I played them all flawlessly because I knew them. So and so they had to give me the job. So uh, I, I stayed uh, three and a half years at Radio City Music Hall, and at those years, there were no blacks in the musical at all. I'm talking about no ticket takers, no ushers, no black ushers, no black stagehands, uh, no blacks in the droquettes, no blacks in the in the, in the uh, ballet, no blacks in the orchestra, of course, uh, no blacks in the chorus. I was the only black in the, in the whole building except uh, the, the couple of black people who were working in the cafeteria. So it was quite a challenge to be able to come to work every evening and be a token, and I was merely a token uh, at that time. And it was a challenge to be able to maintain um, my, 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 you know, my posture and to play as well as I can. And my stomach was in knots every night because I knew I wasn't welcomed. It came to, to, to a head after I'd been there three and a half years. I was, it was announced to the orchestra that we're going to record, record and tape, actually tape the Christmas show. They were going to tape the Christmas show. And uh, they were going to record the music first before they actually did the filming. And there was a recording sound studio above uh, the musical, I, I think it was called Fine Arts. I, I can't remember the name of that studio, but I think it was called Fine Arts Studio. Anyway, they gave us the month that they were going to do the recording, but they didn't give us the date or the week or the date. So we're in the month, and I'm still waiting to know about when, 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 when are we going to do it. So finally I went to the contractor, and I said, well, listen, I don't want to be late for this session. When is the session? What time? He told me, you're not going to play. You're not gonna. You're not gonna be in this recording set. I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, they're hired a white player to come and take my chair." I said, "What?" Yeah, and one of the the white players that they hired, I know him very well. You know, we had been playing freelancing together outside the musical, and he came in, and uh, they told me that uh, I needn't come back until after the recording session. It literally made me sick. Literally, maybe I went home with a high temperature. I guess my blood pressure went up, and I and I just stayed in bed. And finally, they called me and they said, Bob. Back then, it was Bob. Bob, we're finished recording session. Now we're gonna we're gonna start uh, filming it, and we want to start with a close up of you to t to show that uh, that we are integrated. And of course, I got out of bed, went down, and resigned. 
from that environment, what then cemented your relationship with Max? Well, uh, Max was always in the forefront of the struggle for our people uh, during those days, the late and the late fifties and the sixties. Uh, Max was one who inspired a lot of us to start thinking uh, about about uh, political uh, venues. We didn't we didn't uh, uh, you know know a lot about it. At least I didn't. And Max was always being able to teach us what we should know about the struggle. I mean, he was always a, about that struggle. When we were at Manhattan School of Music together, and there was it was impossible to play jazz. Then jazz was not jazz was not uh, allowed in the school. He only had to play European classical music. And when Charlie and when uh, Max Roach was told by his professor that he didn't know how to play because he didn't know how to hold the sticks, uh, he saw that as a remark that was, uh, you know, of a racist, racist institution. And he alerted us all to that. What is this all about? So he and Donald Byrd and a lot of other musicians were all coming together to kind of think about how we're going to combat uh, racism. Max's Tears for Johannesburg from the Freedom Now Suite, sung by Abby Lincoln. This was in the early 60s. I know I was um, performing on, in Carnegie Hall with the Gil Evans Orchestra, and we were, we were performing uh, along with the Miles Davis and John Coltrane, the, the ensemble that was quite well known back then. And uh, at, in, at intermission, I, we all went, you know, backstage to rest and Max walked in uh, and he came directly to me and said he wanted me to enter the stage room with the big signs that he had and which was going to be uh, stop the whole show because the sponsors of that particular concert were contributors to uh, apartheid in South Africa. So I said, well, Max, you know, I'm in New York, I, I really got to play. I mean, I'm hired to play. So he said, that's okay. That's okay. He walked out. When we started back our performance, uh, in the middle of the first song after intermission, Max walked out with the signs by himself, sat cross-legged in front of the stage, and stopped the whole show. And, uh, and I mean, one by one, Miles stopped playing, and Train stopped playing, and the whole orchestra stopped, and we all just looked at Max. 
and uh, until the stage hands came in and literally picked Max up, literally from the sitting position, and put him out on on 57th Street. So uh, after that, I got with Max again. He started to enlighten me about the difficulties, about you know, the apartheid, and he was really enlightening me. So we became close, built around uh, you know uh, South Africa. Max Roach was such a, a, a fervent believer in justice and peace, and he's taught me so much. I mean, he was he was my mentor. You know, he's taught me a lot about life in general, uh, particularly about going on the road and so forth. But he's really the one that began to raise our consciousness about the struggle in, in South Africa. is Max's triptych from the Freedom Now Suite, sung by Abby Lincoln. From the life that the two of you were living, from the times in which you lived, what did that teach you about your music and about your musicianship? Well, you know, he he really taught us, not say us because he didn't only teach me, I mean, everybody around Max, he was everybody's teacher, everybody's friend. Uh, you know that there was more to being a professional musician than just being a good player. You know, you know, you know. We all, you know, we all worked very hard to master our horns. But he talked about life and the things that are associated uh, with music, and and he he taught us taught us the standard of being a professional person not only a professional musician, but a professional person, which was about, uh, you know, being uh, on time, you know, to be, all, be always able to, to converse about the music, to be, you know, he was very, very eloquent with his speaking about the music, and he taught us all how to do that. Cannonball, too, was very well versed in that way. Cannonball Adderley? Yeah, Cannibal Adderley, you know, he was also very, very, very versed in that way. And Max sort of exemplified professionalism. 
he looked professional, he acted professional, he was able to to sustain the harshness of civilization back then in the 50s. You know, he was able to teach us how to handle such situations. And he was even my mentor about going on the road. Because I asked, I said, Max, you know, how how do I behave on the road? How do, how should I work on the road? And he sat me down one day, you know, and said, listen, when you go on the road, Bob, he called me Bob back, that was Bob. He says, I want you to listen to me carefully. Now, so I'm listening to Max. He said, from number one, when you're on the road and you have a night off, don't stay in the hotel. He says, when you go on the road, always have a research project. Always have a research project. When you have a day off, go to the library, work on a research project. If you have an evening off, go to the theater. Do not stay in the hotel room and waste your time sleeping and just, you know, hanging out. So he really taught me a lot. He taught me about, you know, he and uh, uh, Charlie Rouse really too, taught me about diet on the road. You know, back in the day, the road trips were on buses. You know, I used to go on the Newport Jazz Festival tours. Like, you know, we all, we all were on buses back then. And we had to live in a way that was unhealthy. In other words, we ate mostly sandwiches, white bread sandwiches on the road, constantly eating these terrible sandwiches. And, you know, back in the day, we'd do one-nighters. You didn't have a chance to even get your your clothes washed. You got, you got a day off. You had to do that. But Max was always teaching me, and I guess others, about uh, how to work on the road. He said, when you get your paycheck, go directly to the post office and mail that money back home. One of the practical things I remember in that vein was that um, Max, indeed, when when we first started going out on the road together, um, we would always go to the museums on the day off. That's what that's what we did. We we went to museums. We went to cultural places um, on on days off when they weren't performing, but. Um, I, you made me smile with some of the practical things that you were saying because he was one of those people who didn't believe in sleeping late. And his phrase was, you go, you always have to be awake when the banks are open. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's Max. That's Max. That's Max. I'm looking at his picture right now. I think I have a photo gallery in my studio and the the pictures that I have right in the, the first line of the picture, there's Max. You know, like he has, he has, he stays. Well, you know, I believe in ancestors. I believe in the, in, in the ancestors uh, do return. I believe that we are our return ancestors. And uh, Max is going. Max, is, he's he's coming back. Max will come back, and and my vigilant nature is to watch for Max's return. And as these young teenage drummers, Max will be back. And, uh, and I just want people to say, if you believe in, in, in the ancestor world, when you have to pour libations, pour libations, speak Max Roach's name. Keep Max alive in, by, by speaking his name for libation. And I tell all the audience right now, please listen to me. Max was a powerful, powerful figure powerful man and a powerful drummer and I can remember standing next to him on a bandstand just inches from him watching him the intensity and watching the, the ancestors and the spirit move through him I'm right next to him 
and, and you know, watching Max play. And uh, just a wonderful experience. So just as I said, Paul Libation, when you Paul Libation, call out Max Roach's name. That was Brother R, longtime friend of Max Roach. On the Janice Adams Show today, a birthday tribute to Max and his masterwork, We Insist, The Freedom Now Suite. More after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with a birthday tribute to Max Roach. In January 2014, marking what would have been Max's 90th birthday, the Library of Congress celebrated its acquisition of his papers for their collection. Here I am, paying tribute to Max, the man and his music, husband, father, friend, grandfather. Son. I, I want to begin by invoking uh, two names that have not yet been mentioned because when I heard that this event was taking place, I said, my goodness, would that Cressy and Al would be here to know how the world now views their son? And that's Cressy Olivia Sanders Roach's mother and Alfonso Roach. When I saw the clip of Max uh, referring to how at 17 he um, began with Duke Ellington, he's putting it in his own context. I'm going to put it in mine. Um, These two people who became part of the great black migration and brought their two sons north, they had the tragic experience of losing their eldest son, Alfonso Jr., to the Depression, and still they raised what became a child prodigy, and Max really was a child prodigy. He, um, he achieved such a reputation uh, as a young musician that that's why the elders reached out and said, no, he's one of us, and we're going to bring him up on the stage, and we trust our contracts enough to say that if we bring this guy up, he can really perform. And they treated him that way. Their son was born January 8th, 1924. You will see many records where it says January 10th. And that's because he was born into a world that cared so little about him that the birth was recorded when they went to the courthouse to record the birth rather than the date of the birth. And still, that environment into which he was born, the Freedom Now Suite, becomes an authentic cry for freedom. I remember I took a call one time from Fred de Cordova for the Johnny Carson show. And Fred was his usual abrasive, rude self. And he said, yeah, look, can this man talk? He didn't use the word man. Can this guy talk? That's all I want to know. Can he talk? 
I said, well, you know, he's been concerts, he's done all this, he's all over the world, you know, he's a professor, but can he talk? And I said, yes, Brad, he can talk. And so as I come in here today, I see Max's handwriting, I see Cressy and Al's son, and I am very grateful for the way he conducted his life so that not only could he talk, but others now will listen and learn from him in a unique way. So I'm very happy for this event on, on that um, score. So I thank you. I thank Max. today's show with a remembrance of noted music critic Nat Hentoff, who died this past week at 91. Here on the Janice Adams Show, we say this is a program about race, every race, and courage. In that, Nat was both colleague and comrade. Before joining Candid Records, where, as A&R man, he produced the now classic album, The Freedom Now Suite, Nat had been an editor at Downbeat Magazine. He was fired, reportedly, for pushing to hire African-American writers for the magazine that had made its success chronicling jazz, African-American music. We remember Nat for his courage, his conscience, and his fabulous good taste as producer of the Freedom Now Suite. We pay thanks, too, for the courage and creativity of our guest today, musician and Pacifica talk show host, Brother Ah, and theater director, George Ferrance. For more on today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, our thanks to our guests, to you for joining us today, and indeed, my thanks to Max. I'm Janice Adams. The beat has a rich and magnificent history, full of adventure. Excitement and mystery. Some of it bitter and some of it sweet, but all of it part of the beat. The beat, the beat. They say it began with a chant and a hum and a black hand laid. On a native drum Bantu Zulu 
Oh, oh, oh.